You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. There's only two types of company, one, the one that have been hacked and the one that don't know that have been hacked yet. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, my conversation with Nico Pop from Forcepoint. We're going to be talking about why understanding human behavior is a major key to security. All right, Joe, before we dig into our stories, uh, we got a kind note from a listener uh, who's looking for a little advice from us. Uh, Mm -hmm. This person writes, they say, hi, Dave and Joe. Thank you for doing your podcast. I find it very helpful, especially being someone that's not knowledgeable with the Internet. I posted an ad on Craigslist to see a helmet. Someone or a scammer sent me the following. Scammer. Hi, new Smith women's Allure snow helmet, size small, still available? Me. Yes, it is. Scammer, I need to verify before we meet. I will send you a code to verify you are real because I saw most post is fake. I want to send a six-digit number. Then you tell me that I will match it with my number. If it is right, then you are real. And after that, I will call you and discuss all about this. Can I send the code? Me. Sure. Scammer, I just send it. Check your phone message and send the code. And then our listener says, I actually sent them the code and luckily it didn't work and they wanted to send another code to me to a different phone number. Now I suspected that something was off because the response to my Craigslist ad was weird, but with the advice of an engineer working in security, I answered, I want to know what are they trying to scam? Also, this is the first time I heard of such a scam. It would be great if people like me are educated about it so we could avoid such scammers. Thank you for your time. Joe, what do you make of this? I think this person should change their password on whatever email they use to sign up for this Craigslist account. Mm. Because Mm. this, to me, sounds like somebody is trying to uh, execute a change password attack and take over the account. I think Craigslist puts your email out there for people to reach out to you. Well, Craigslist initially, I think they obfuscate your email when you have an initial contact with someone. You know, right. it, it goes through, a, there's a layer that Craigslist uses. But I, I don't think it's a big deal to then find someone's actual email after that. Right. But it seems to me, I mean, this whole, how many accounts do we use where either the second factor is someone texting you a six-digit number, right, right? or something like that. A lot of times that's the workflow for a password change, right? Like I forgot my password. We're going to send you a a six-digit code. So this Mm -hmm. person probably already has our listener's email address, has clicked on the uh, I forgot my password link, and they said we're going to send a code to your phone number. Then they've reached out to the person and said, I'm going to send you a code to verify you're real. And then this is an attempt to take over an account is what I think this is. So you should change, change your password on that email immediately. Uh, mm-hmm. As soon as you can. Yeah. So it's a good reminder here that uh, if anybody asks you to do something like this, if they say they're using some sort of, they're sending you a code to verify who you are, and it, right. and it is not your bank or your, <laughs> or the, you know, it's not the people you're dealing with with this account. If it's a stranger, right, it's almost always a scam. If it's an inbound call, I would say it's always a scam. I mean, mm-hmm. I've had right. people from, I think, you know, I have Comcast here at home. And I've, I've had people where I call into Comcast and they say, 
Uh, we're going to verify it's you by sending your phone a code. That's okay because I've made the call out to what I know is Comcast. An inbound right. call, you don't know that's from anybody. Right, something out of the blue. Yep, right. yep, it's a good reminder. So to our listener here, yep, looks like someone's trying to to take over one of your accounts. And it seems like uh, hopefully you were lucky and they did not do so. But I think Joe's advice is uh, rock solid to go through and just change those passwords. Don't reuse your passwords. Change your passwords. Use a password manager. Use a password (laughs) manager. Easiest thing in the world to do. Right, right. And you'll be surprised. Once you've implemented a password manager, you will wonder how you logged into accounts without it before. That's right. All right. Well, thank you for uh, sending us that kind note. Uh, It's a good reminder for all of us. Joe, why don't you kick things off with some stories for us this week? Dave, I saw an article over on Graham Cluley's website. He had a story from the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission. So I went actually directly to the FTC website. And uh, Sina Gresson, who is an attorney with the FTC, wrote a blog post warning customers of a site that is impersonating the FCC. And it is calling itself the U.S. Trading Commission, which is not Hmm. a real thing. But they're using the FTC logo. Uh, the FTC is a Federal Trade Commission. I don't think I've said that yet, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and th- they are the uh, part of the Department of Commerce, and they regulate a lot of a lot of uh, things. And they part part of what they do is they investigate uh, internet scams. But mm. this site is claiming that it operates a personal data protection fund. Hmm. This is a new site, and it compensates people whose personal information have been exposed on the web. That's the claim, though. Oh. Right? But of course, they don't do that. <laughs> this is this is a what what we call a follow-on scam, right? Okay. And a follow-on scam is something you usually see when someone has been bilked out of their money. The scammers, once they've taken a, a certain amount of money and they can't get any more money out of the person, they'll change tactics and they'll call the person and say, Hey, we're from law enforcement. We know you got scammed. We're going to try to help you get your your many thousands of dollars back. But in order for you to do that, we're going to need some more money up front. And it's just mm-hmm. the same scammers changing the narrative here. And this is somebody doing the same thing on a broader scale, hoping to just kind of lure people in. Mm. The site says you can receive an instant cash payment, right, just by clicking on some links and giving them some personal information, including your bank account or electronic wallet information. Ah, oh, there it is. Which Exactly, which of course means they're just going to empty out your bank account if you give them that information. Right. The website also warns that you may be downloading malware onto your computer. You know, they may ask you to install something, and if you do it, then bam. Of course, there's always the possibility of the drive-by download where you just load the web page, and the web page exploits some kind of vulnerability in your browser. But that's less probable than them saying, oh, install this software, because that's easier to do. They're going to ask you to do something. That's the main crux of the entire nature of social engineering, is they're going to get you to do something that's not in your best interest, right? Right. They are promising refunds, not just to people in the U.S., but all over the world. They're saying we can get you refunds. So the FTC has some things they would like you to know. They put this in this article, this blog posting. The FTC does shut down scams and return money to people who have lost it to dishonest and unfair business practices. So the FTC may go out and recover money on your behalf and give it back to you. Mm -hmm. But they will never ask you for money. They will never ask you for your bank account. They will never ask you for a credit card. They will never ask you for a social security number. And if they do wind up recovering money and giving it back to you, it will most likely be in the form of a check that they mail to you. Right, right. right? <laughs> yes. That's how this process works. 
government likes to do it the old fashioned way, right? right? The old slow way. I'll, I'll tell you, Dave, that this is how I, I elect to receive my IRS refunds for my tax uh-huh. returns. This is how, if I owe money at the end of the year, I send them a check. And if they owe me money, they send me a check. And you know what? I'm okay with that. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm fine good for with you, that. Joe. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you really need the money right away, and I understand that, there are companies out there like uh, any of the tax prep companies who will advance that money to you for a small fee. I recommend that over storing your banking account information with the IRS. There have been some remarkable (laughs) data breaches from the government, so I just don't trust them with my banking information. Not that I think Mm. that they're malicious. I just don't think that my information is secure, and there have been some recent events that make me happy that I made that decision. (laughs) Okay, fair enough, fair enough. (laughs) All right, well, we will have a link to this alert from the FTC in the show notes, of course. Interesting story. My story this week, uh, this comes from the New York Times. And actually, it's the New York Times Magazine. It's an interesting long article, uh, and it is all about telephone scams and how huh. these scams work. It's a long narrative. Uh, starts out uh, talking about a, an elderly woman who, who got scammed. But then it goes on to talk about someone who fights the scammers, who is actually listening in on the scammers while they were scamming this elderly woman. And he then followed up with the woman to make sure that she didn't get scammed. So this is a a good guy who streams his efforts online on YouTube to show him scamming the scammers. Awesome. Uh, he sets himself up so that scammers try to interact with him, but then he turns the tables on them and actually install software on the scammers machines so that he can monitor them. We should probably note that this is probably not within the bound of legality. Yes. Well, he is in the UK, I believe. So he is outside of the the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act here in the United States, which I suppose is part of how he gets away with what he does. But yes. Good. I could generously say it's a gray area. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. (laughs) And and while I like to see this kind of thing happen, and I kind of... I kind of get a little, oh, yeah, that's great feeling. Yeah. And we should warn everybody, do not try this at home. That's right. Yeah. I mean, this this person obviously has some skills, but, uh, yep. you know, if you start messing around with uh, folks who are already committing crimes, mm-hmm. chances are it's got to escalate. And yes. the last thing you want to have is, is that happen. But the person who wrote this article actually flew to India to look for some of these scam call centers. Really? Yeah. And many of them are in India. Uh, It Mm -hmm. seems like there's a real epicenter of this in India. And the article points out that there's a good reason for that in that, remember, I don't know, a decade or maybe a couple decades ago when many of the the world's call centers shifted to India, right? Right. And the reason for that was twofold. It was uh, people are cheaper to hire in India. The the Mm -hmm. standards for paying people is much lower than it is, say, here in the United States. But also many, many folks who live in India speak English. Right. And uh, speak speak English well. Mm -hmm. So it's a good fit when it comes to that. So a couple interesting things in this article that I hadn't really considered. One is that... There are many, many existing legitimate call centers in India. Absolutely. And for many of them, it's not a big deal to shift over to maybe doing some business that's not so legitimate. They may even have both business models. Well, exactly. And the illegitimate businesses are probably have higher margins, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're sure. more profitable. But it also makes it harder on law enforcement because the local law enforcement who is looking to shut down the 
these scams and they do uh, execute raids from time to time and they do shut them down. It's difficult for them to do that if a call center is running a legitimate business in addition to the illegitimate stuff, because they say these these folks are very smart and they're very good at hiding the illegitimate side of their business. And so you go into raid one of these places and and they're just doing legitimate business for, you know, Microsoft or Google or, you know, any of the, the big companies who outsource their call centers over to India. Yeah, Al Capone used to own a bunch of laundromats in Chicago, and that's how he put his money through there, and that's why the term is called laundering. Oh, interesting. You go in there and you're confronted with, hey, we're just doing honest business here. Right. Another component of this is that uh, for the folks who are doing this, the individuals who are hired to do the scamming, this is good work for them. They make more money than they would doing other things. This article points out that there's an overabundance of folks who have completed education in engineering, but who there are not jobs for. It says that about 20% of the people who've been educated to be an engineer, there are actually positions for locally. So they have all of these college graduates who have technical skills. Really? And in India, only 20% of engineers are hired? Is that what you're That's saying? What, according to this article, yeah. Huh. It says uh, Indian educational institutions churn out more than 1.5 million engineers every year. But according to one survey, fewer than 20% are equipped to land positions related to their training. So these folks have uh, some technical skills uh, and uh, are uh, well-spoken, speak English. So they're well-equipped to take these jobs, and and this is a good opportunity for them. This article goes and actually finds one of the scammers, the person who wrote this, finds one of the folks who took employment (laughs) with one of these scamming call centers and talks to him about it. And, you know, it's interesting. I mean, he clearly feels some remorse for what he's doing, not enough to not do it. Right. But <laughs> it's an interesting situation. Everybody wants to uh, provide for themselves and for their families. And I could imagine, you know, you're you're taking advantage of people who are a world away. You're not hitting up people in your hometown or anything like that. It, it could be tempting. You can you can understand the temptation. Absolutely. Um, no, I understand yeah. the situation, especially if I if I graduated from some college with an engineering degree, thinking I was going to get a good job. And I become disenchanted with that. I could absolutely see how people turn to this. The solution is, uh, you know, economic development, I think, is the solution. That's really a solution to a lot of the world's problems. This article talks about how um, this particular person was paid a quarter of whatever they defrauded the victims from. That is a pretty good commission. Could be a pretty good commission. And also said that this person had scammed up to $5,000 from folks. So... In a part of the world where, as this article mentions, it's not unusual for folks to make $25 a month, say, it's quite an opportunity. To, yeah, for to our listeners in, in the United States, it's really hard to understand. The international poverty level is is below $2 a day, and a lot of people survive on less than that. So yeah. if you can get a job or if you can scam somebody out of $25 every day in one of these economies, you're doing very, very well for that economy. Right. So there is a lot to this article. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. Uh, I, I'm just scratching the surface here. But if you're interested in these sorts of things, and I would uh, hazard to say if you're listening to this show, you probably are. Right. Uh, it is a good, entertaining, and educational read. Again, from the New York Times Magazine. Uh, it's titled, Who's Making All Those Scam Calls? It's, uh, it's a good one to check out. All right, Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from a listener calling himself Billy Barul. 
Dave, unfortunately, we have missed the time window for this one because uh, uh, this one comes from the former first lady, Melania Trump. And oh. um, it is about uh, an overdue payment release. Dave, would you care to take it away? <laughs> well, I certainly will. Overdue payment released. I am Mrs. Melania Trump. This is to officially inform you, darling, that your overdue <laughs> payment from Kenya total some 18 million United States dollars is currently here in my office, White House, Washington, D.C. <laughs> and the funds will be delivered to you as soon as you get back to this office and comply with the requirement that's needed to deliver your total fund to you as well. Your home address and your cell phone numbers is highly needed to complete this delivering to you as well, darling. Bear in mind that I have taken my time to be in charge of your fund as instructed by my husband to ensure that you received your fund successfully from the White House to reduce the economy. And I'm the only one that has your fund in regard to my husband, Mr. Donald Trump, too. And you will receive your fund through bank draft check or ATM card will deliver to you. And you are also expecting to be announced as beneficiary of same amount as your fund is delivered to you, darling. So you are currently advised to get back to me with your home address and cell phone number. Reconfirm your information to avoid wrong delivery. Your full name, country, city, address, cell phone number. Thanks. Regards. Mrs. Melania Trump, the White House, official residence of the President of the U.S. First Lady, United States of America, darling. <laughs> Dave, I just imagine Melania Trump sitting somewhere in the White House with her feet propped up on $18 million cash. <laughs> just a big pile of cash, right? <laughs> like right she's saying, yeah, she, uh, she's saying, boy, I, I need to get this to the person who, who it's uh, <laughs> who <laughs> is entitled to it. <laughs> who's entitled yeah. to it, exactly. Uh, yeah, well, you know, I mean, she's, she's uh, online bullying was her thing. So she's, she's not only is she helping to stop online bullying, but she's making sure that people get the money back to them that's entitled to her. So. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Very All right. Well, pretty obvious what's going on here, Joe. Yeah, they're just trying to scam somebody with it. They're first off, they're collecting a bunch of personal information so they can maybe sell that for people to steal your identity. And then they're also trying, probably going to try to execute an advanced fee scam where they say, oh, in order for you to get this money, we're going to need some fees, you know, mm -hmm. it, you know mm -hmm. a small yep. like 0.1% of $18 million. Send that to us and we'll, uh, we'll release this, uh, this dollar. Think of the, think of the money you'll yeah. make, Dave. Yeah, I know. Well, and take, you know, I think also taking advantage of the image of both uh, Mrs. Trump and Mr. Trump as being wealthy people. So right. the, the notion that, that this sort of money would be adjacent to them. Right. What's probably what does a billionaire need with $18 million? Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Uh, the authority of the office of the president of the United States and the mm -hmm. first lady. And, and of course, I guess the first lady being a, a do-gooder as first ladies are. Yep. Uh, so there's a lot here that you could see how someone could fall for it. All right. Well, thanks to our listener for sending that in. That is a fun catch of the day. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Nico Pop from Forcepoint, and our conversation centers around why understanding human behavior is a major key to security. Here's my conversation with Nico Pop. Every time I, I, I talk about security and, uh, and then behavior, I don't know if you've seen that cartoon. It always comes to mind. There is a ring, you know, a boxing ring. And then uh, on, the, on the left, you have uh, a woman that's uh, holding a post that says data security with, you know, in that corner, we have firewall, encryption, antivirus software, et cetera, et cetera. And in the other corner, 
you get a, a big guy, a little bit sloppy with a big red T-shirt that says human error. And, you know, basically, <laughs> Dave is going to defeat cybersecurity and the entire stack because we've ignored Dave, right, for 20 years in cybersecurity. So we're really at the beginning. Long yeah. answer, but we are at the beginning. Yeah, as someone named Dave, I am familiar with that cartoon, absolutely. <laughs> okay, I mean, let's walk through, I mean, some of the evolution here of, of what got us to where we are today. I mean, is it is it fair to say that the history of cybersecurity has really focused a lot on the, the ones and zeros, on the connections, the binary stuff, rather than the human factors? For sure. It, it's even it's interesting, even when we, we focus on the human, first of all, yes, it's very binary in, in, in many ways in, in the way we, we secure things. But I think that the biggest issue has been that we, we focus on the outside world, right? And so if you look at the 20 billion we've spending in security, it's basically looking for the outside enemy. And so we'll look at, as you said, binary things like bad IP addresses, right? bad URLs, bad domain name, you know, hash of toolkits that will show that the enemy is there. And the reality is it's always, always, right? The enemy is it, right? We spend all that money. And then, you know, I think it was a, a very famous CEO in the Silicon Valley say, look, there's only two types of company, one, the one that have been hacked and the one that don't know that have been hacked yet. So mm. it has failed because we've totally ignored the kind of the, the core of the uh, what's inside the, the enterprise, the the human and the data, quite frankly, I put both in the same basket. So we've focused on uh, a lot of things, but by the end user, but Dave. So when we're talking about behavioral analytics, what does that encompass? What, what does that describe? It's kind of a trying to answer the question, if the breaches, right, the attacks, at some point will always turn into, you know, an insider job. Right? Can we, instead of looking for the outsider, the bad guys, can we actually try to better understand what our users are actually doing in the normal course of the day? How do they behave? What is normal versus abnormal? What is you know usual versus unusual? So that when a bad guy will, is actually posing as Dave, right, we can actually notice that there is something you know different, and we can react accordingly. So I think it's really about trying to understand normal and usual behavior, normal of your users, there was a normal and usual behavior of the all data. Can you give us some examples? I mean, what would a, you know, a typical person going throughout their day, what sort of things would be tracked and fed into this uh, system to be able to make sure everything was on the up and up? Yeah, so, you know, for example, you know, is it normal for Dave to actually, you know, aggregate, hold so much data? And among that data, so much maybe customer confidential data, right? Is that something that Dave should be doing in terms of uh, the job that he's performing for us? Is it something that he's done in the past, right? That's, that's for example, that's what we call an indicator of behavior that is suspicious, right? Another example could be, you know, typically the, the bad guys will turn into power users, right? What we call system administrators. And what they'll do, they'll create new, uh, new Daves in the Active Directory, they'll create new user and they will elevate the right of that new users. These are employees that you never had. So, you know, can we understand that behavior? Why is that system administrator doing these things that normal? Uh, so you can imagine time of the day, access to data, access to application, frequency, volume, confidentiality, all these things are indicator of behavior that can be very revealing. 
That's what we're looking for, for these anomalies, if you want. So when someone starts using a system like this, is I suppose there's a, a period of time when the, the system is being trained, when it's getting up to speed? Uh, so this actually depends on the techniques. So we have techniques where we actually uh, have libraries of what we call indicator of behaviors. And each indicator of, of behavior, very much like you know, you have these indicator of compromise uh, that are looking at outside in. We're looking at inside out security. So we have this library uh, in the case of false point of pre-constructed behavior, which we know represents a little bit of risk. And so we can actually, without baselining the user, we can actually look at these, whether this user exhibits this known risky behavior. And then we can start mm-hmm. rescoring the user. In addition, what we like to do is listen and monitor and compare you to peer dynamic group, you know, people that have the same job, that they, they seem to perform the same task. So we'll, we'll do both because often baselining, you know, might be too, you know, taking too much time. So we like to use, to mix the techniques. I mean, do you sometimes find that that folks in the, in the course of their regular day and, and getting their jobs done are are inadvertently using risky techniques, doing things in a risky way when perhaps they they don't need to? Uh, well, you remember my cartoon, right? See, I think the, <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of Daves out there, and you know, and 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 this actually uh, one of the you know there there are different threats. There is the the bad guys masquerading. As the good guys, right? And that one is, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of the compromise user. There is the malicious insider, the Dave that turned bad. That's like, you know, I'm done with this place. I'm going to sabotage, or I'm going to move uh, to a new company, maybe a competitor, and I'm going to steal the conjure, right? That's kind of insider threat. That's the second type of uh, behavior. And then there is like people that just trying to, you know, they're just sloppy. They're just uneducated or they're just trying to go fast because they have a task to complete. They are the one that are going to send, you know, it's the developer that's going to send the source code, right, to their iCloud. It's this uh, researcher that is working on the COVID-19 vaccine that's going to send the formula to his Gmail so he can basically keep on working because he has more storage there. <laughs> that's the kind of Dave that, you know, we need to, we, we want to support. I mean, those, by the way, are interesting because, I think that's where security could actually improve. We Because we've ignored the human, we can actually, there's a moment, right? The teachable moment where se- security could actually intervene to say, you know, Dave, this is not the right behavior. Let me teach you that, you know, you should not be doing that. This is risky. And let me train you on what good behavior is. And I think that's part of cybersecurity ignoring the end user is not just the behavior. It's also, we haven't tried to teach. We haven't tried to interact, you know, I, uh, we haven't tried to leverage our users to help us secure the workplace. And I think that's another dimension of human-centric security for us. I suppose, too, for the folks running the business, it gives them insights onto you know, whether or not they're providing their teams with the tools that they need. You know, as you mentioned, if someone's transferring data to a Gmail account or a personal account or something because they feel like they don't have enough storage well, if someone's going to the point of doing that, I want to know that as as a manager that they don't have the tools they need. And also there's some reason why they're not telling me. Exactly. It's one of the shortfall of security, right, is, is what you said at the beginning. We're very binary. So in security, we decided that the world was black and white. And so because of that, you know, in security, we allow you to do something or we block you from doing something. Right. The reality is that there are 50 shades. 
of human grade, right, in, in behavior. And so uh, part of the, the idea here is to basically say, look, maybe we can look at people in, let's simplify, in three different ways. There are the people that are doing it right. They're well-educated, they are low risk. We're gonna free them. We're gonna free the good and let them work seamlessly and do everything they have to do because they have hygiene, they are educated, they are respectful, okay? And then, you know, there's the people that are medium risk, right? Because remember my indicator of behavior, uh, my monitoring of what they are doing, they probably not threat yet, but, and they're probably still teachable. They haven't moved to the dark side yet. So <laughs> I can basically use this teachable moment to actually recognize, oh, Dave needs that kind of training. Dave needs this kind of tool. Dave needs this kind of feedback. And then finally, there is the guy who've actually crossed the line of risk, right? And then those, I probably want to confine and restrict what they can do. And if security was able to adapt to these, you know, three groups of human, and again, I've oversimplified, I think we already uh, improve quite a bit the what's the efficacy of cybersecurity as well as the user experience of cybersecurity that often has such a bad rap, right? We are in the way. No, we want to we want to set people free to do their their job, but as long as they do it carefully. And we want to teach them. That's a really important point because I think most people have the the feeling or the impulse that, you know, we don't like to feel like there's someone looking over our shoulder all the time, you know, that we might get slapped on the wrist for, for doing the wrong thing or, you know, accidentally, I don't know, going to the wrong folder or whatever. So one of the points you're making is that it's important when we have this sort of monitoring that it's not about punishing people. It's about, as you say, teachable moments, you know, showing them the right, right. path. I would go even beyond it. It's like you are, you know, you know, Dave, you're now part of our cybersecurity solution. You know, I, I always use the example of credit card companies, right? They, they have been brilliant. You know, they have huge fraud issues. And what have they done? They basically involve us into the process of solving, right? They don't block always your credit card. They may block you, but they may ask you, you know what? We've seen that transaction. It looks suspicious to us. Is that, you know, is that really you? trying to complete these things. You know, we don't have, and it's working, right? Can you imagine they are using all these consumer to solve the fraud problem? And of course we care, so we participate. So taking that concept of putting the human in the middle and say, look, you're part of the solution. We're gonna engage you. It's not just about punishing, monitoring you, spying on you, quite the opposite. We're trying to make you better, but also we want you to be part of our cybersecurity team. You know, because we want to be able to leverage the fact that we have these smart and caring human being, carbon forms, right, behind the keyboard that also care about the company assets and can help there. Something that cyber has never done. That's really that whole idea of putting human in the middle of cyber. It's all these different dimensions, these different approaches. All right, Joe, what do you think? Dave, I, I love these kind of interviews where we talk about uh, the human factors in, in cybersecurity. First, I want to talk about the cartoon that Nico is referencing about uh, Dave. You know, in this corner, we have all this tech, and in the <laughs> other corner, we have Dave. Yeah. Uh, I, I love that cartoon. I posted it on Facebook, and one of my friends who was, who was at the first job that I, I had that was a full-on security job, he says, my money's on Dave. <laughs> Thank you, friend. I appreciate that. Right. <laughs> on behalf of Dave's everywhere. Uh, yes. <laughs> 
Nico makes a great point. Binary things are easy. This is why the, you know, the technology is getting a lot better. We are technologically more secure, but these malicious actors are still getting in. And it's because of human behavior. Behavior is an interesting field to me. People hoarding data is an interesting behavior. Do these people need to hoard all this data? Are they collecting the data? This was one of the behaviors that Edward Snowden did right before he took off that could have stopped that data breach. Creating a new user or copies of yourself or doing privilege escalation, these are behaviors that should stick out like sore thumbs. And I like whatever his product is, they have developed these kind of baseline, already known bad behaviors that they look for. So they don't have to come in and say, oh, baseline a behavior, and then start saying, oh, there's some anomalous behavior. They already know what that behavior is, and they have the profiles mm-hmm. for it. When Nico is talking about people getting around security systems like using iCloud or email. I like what Nico says that there's an opportunity for training, but I agree with you in this interview that this is an indicator of a bigger issue. It means either you don't have the tools that your employees need to do the job, or you do have the tools and they don't know about it, right? Which is an education issue. And your point is they're not telling you that they're doing this, which indicates some deeper issue that you have in your culture, I think. There's no product in the world that will fix that, ever. This harkens back to what Bruce Schneier says. He says, if you think security can be resolved with a product, then you don't understand the problem or the product. Hmm. Uh, Interesting. I think that's right. Uh, The security department is often viewed as the no department, right? I like what Nico says here about we need to be more collaborative with people, and we should never be about punishing people. I agree with that 100%. If you punish people, that, again, I think that damages your culture. And Nico says something here that I agree with 100%. And Dave, if by some magic I was made CISO of some organization tomorrow, one of my first actions would be to hold an all-hands meeting and say to every single employee that they are now part of my cybersecurity team. Hmm. That would be the the very first action I'd take. I'd say, listen, this is not going to work without all of you being part of the team, because it isn't. It, it just isn't. The awareness, the ability to talk to people, to interact interpersonally within the organization and have open discussions about security-related issues and secure behavior, a positive security culture is imperative to a good security program. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love the idea of highlighting when someone has made a mistake right. or you know someone has clicked on a link and something bad happened to take that to the entire organization, not as a way of shaming that person, but a way of praising that person to say, listen, you know, so this happened to so-and-so, they got fooled by this, and we are so appreciative that they brought this to our attention because now we know that this is happening. We've been able to, you know, train that person and we're able to share this with all of you. This right. is a good outcome for this. We are able to prevent it. Um, so, you know, thank you so much. And so just by framing it as being a positive learning experience for everyone and not putting that that shadow of shame over someone. Right. I think that could go a long way towards building a positive, uh, as you say, a positive culture in your organization when it comes to security. Yeah, people are going to make mistakes. And it's, it's just a fact of life. And yep. you have to embrace that and understand it. And your goal should not be the elimination of, of mistakes, but your goal should be the reduction of those mistakes and the improvement of ways to mitigate it when people do make mistakes. Right. And you want them to tell you about it when it happens. You don't Absolutely. want to, and you if you, if you make you them it. feel shame, they're going to try to hide it. And that only leads to worse outcomes. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, our thanks to Nico Pop for joining us. Uh, we do appreciate uh, the conversation there. 
We want to thank all of you for listening. And of course, we want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thank you.